Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 63. I'm Mike Updegraff. And I'm Joshua Klein. And we have wrapped up our mini-series uh, in which we went through David Pye's book, uh, The Nature and Art of Workmanship, chapter by chapter. Uh, it had its ups and downs, its drama. I was on uh, the edge of my seat action. the entire time, yeah. as were all of our readers. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, and, you know, as with any book that you read, there are areas that you find yourself nodding, you know, in, in agreement with, and you're like, yes, exactly. And then there are areas that you, or we, find ourselves disagreeing and going, eh. Saying, what in the world kind of argument yeah. is that? Like, that seems like a loose end. You know, I would have tied that up, or how would Pi tie that up in, in the case of this book? So... Uh, we wanted to talk about that today. Uh, yeah. This is kind of our conclusion to the series, um, but we want to kind of look at how we might critique the book, uh, places that we felt that he didn't go far enough or maybe went too far. Um, there are a lot of critics of David Pye. I think maybe a lot of them uh, haven't read the book or haven't understood because they criticize mm -hmm. him for areas uh, in which he... Is actually quite insightful. He's quite insightful, yeah. He's not really guilty of that, um, the things that they accuse him of. But there are other places, I think, where he does come up to a line and then he doesn't cross it, or he crosses it way too far. Hmm. And so um, we're going to talk about a few of those today. And uh, if you've been following along, um, you know, making notes in your copy of the book, uh, maybe you have some thoughts or insights as well into uh, places that you think Pi falls short, um, and uh, we'll, we'll say it at the end, but we would love to hear from you on those. We'd love to, uh, to get some feedback and to be uh, thinking together about more of this stuff, because this is, this is valuable to be talking over. So. Yeah. And I think one of the things too, Mike, you were saying that, you know, Pi, um, some people would say he overreached or he was off base on, a, on something, but I think fundamentally, the way we ended the last episode, we were talking about how I actually think the scope of his discussion, it seems so big. The nature mm -hmm. and art of workmanship. Right. It's like, wow, this is such a huge, expansive topic, and he's going to go all over the place and talk about all this different stuff. And then you come to realize, as you're going through the book, that his scope is actually so a crazy microscope. narrow. Yeah. yeah. He What he's trying to accomplish is this tiny little... Um, you know, objective scientific uh, discussion about aesthetics and what's important and the diversity and the texture and, and that kind of thing. He's so focused on this narrow little vision that I, I feel, and it sounds like you were feeling as well, that by the time you get to the book, you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mm -hmm. know, as I put it in the last episode, why? Yeah. I kept, I kept asking that reading through, I and mean, he's talking about... Um, regulation, high regulation in the um, in the built environment around us that it's you know potentially, potentially dangerous. Dangerous, yeah. And we say, and I would, what? Why? Yeah. Dan Tell us more. Dangerous for our generation. And I think it's. Um, I think he's talking about the. Um, there's something within us that is dangerous for us. Now he wasn't saying. If you remember the argument, what he was saying is that um, every generation or every uh, time period has uh, a different. Uh, balance of regulation and free work. So, you know, when you're living in a frontier area and everything is kind of rough hewn and whatever, you want something glossy and colorful and smooth, right? So you want to offset that. And so 
He's saying, but for our generation, uh, having everything clinical, having everything smooth, that he wasn't just saying, we have too much of it and it'd be nice to get some variety. He actually started using some morally laden language, like yeah. dangerous. Yeah. And I think that's that kind of thing. Um, some people would say, oh, this is where Pi got off course. And I would say, no, actually, he stopped. Yeah. He started on course. He, he, was, he saw that, that there's actually something fundamentally important for us as people mm-hmm. that we need. Uh, but he, he just kind of dropped it there and, and moved yeah, on. And he, he went back to his just analysis. Yeah, trying to be, oh yeah, put zip up the lab coat again and get yeah, back exactly. into the scientific description, which I just, I don't think it really uh, gets us where we need to be. So why do we need diversity? Yeah. Why do we actually need that for us? And why is it dangerous not to have it? Um, and then he talks about, he has this thing at, at last episode, he talked about rough for the sake of rough. He is very opposed to yeah. that. And that was that was a big part of his quibbles with Ruskin because yeah. it sounds like Ruskin is all for rough for the sake of rough because the the worker who's free to make it rough has has creative freedom in his work and Pi's like no you don't just make something crappy just because you're free to do it like you right. should you should strive for good work and and good work and um, you know some precision in work because Pi it seems like really liked that line between like regulation and free work. And he, he pushed that line mm. in his own work. Um, but he didn't like the idea of just rough because, because rough. Yeah. But he then also, what's interesting is he said he didn't like that, but he likes variety yeah. and these subtle variations. And then he held up as an example, uh, a, a, a sketch by Rembrandt, I believe mm-hmm. it was this sketch and it was very, it was a very quick, yep. loose, free sketch. Like a this is sketch. his free work example, yep. one of his examples. And he says, you know, he's showing that this shows the, um, this the free work of, mm-hmm. of the sketch and how it has this diversity and this life to it. And I think that's so interesting because I would say that's a really rough sketch, but I mm-hmm. agree that it's lovely and beautiful and full yeah. of life. So I think that's where I would, I don't really follow how Pi is distinguishing between rough for the sake of rough and diverse for the sake of diverse. Right, which he's holding up as kind of the, the highest of virtues. Like yep. we should have diversity because in, in texture and, in, you know, because what he comes to say is that the workmanship of risk is in his day when he wrote this book in the late 60s, it's the only way to generate this diversity of surface, right? This beautiful idealized surface texture that he talks about. You know, when you look at a piece of handmade furniture, you see the surface, it's not machine flat. It has diversity. You can examine it each. The closer you look at it, the more meets the eye. And mm-hmm. so he's saying that's the ideal. You want something that's new at different scales that gives yeah. you, you change your angle and it's something it new to It shimmers discover. a little bit differently yeah. and you see the texture, but it's subtle. And yeah, like, oh. so he's saying that is what we should pursue and we can't get it with machines, so the handmade must persist, right? right? That's his fundamental argument in the book. Yeah, but the problem there and the holes that you could find in that are, like he says at one point, if we realize that this is the most important thing, basically we should just make our machines to reproduce it. Yeah, if we could. Yeah, if we could, which they it couldn't be done back then. Uh, but as with anything, you say, like, Joshua, the example you give is, like, um, way back in the day, 
somebody's like, oh, you know, email is stupid because it's so clunky and crashes all the time. Well, of course, it's gotten way better. Right. And as with any technology, you could say, well, AI is not going to go anywhere because it's stupid and clunky and makes mistakes. Well, it's going to get better. So we yeah. have to deal with more fundamental questions than how clunky it is right, right. now. Yeah, it's classic with um, the, the poetry thing in AI. As of this recording, uh -huh. it, next month, it's yeah. going to be a different it's discussion because that stuff is so fast. But as of this recording, you know, when AI poetry was generated, it was laughed at because it was so, mm -hmm. you know, stupid. It mm -hmm. was so empty. It was so meaningless. And it was just kind of random garbled words. As of this recording, yeah. you type something into... Uh, you know, some AI generated text and the poetry is it's getting there. decent. Yep. It's actually makes sense. It has, it makes a lot of logical, a lot of uh, logical connections. It has a great rhyme, rhyme scheme. You have all these pieces coming together. And as of, you know, if, if you're listening to this six months down the road, it's even better. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, that's a bad argument yeah. to say, well, the um, this isn't any good because this technology can't do as good as this other thing. Yeah. Well, right that's only now. true yeah. this moment, yeah. and so we have to think more at a, at a deeper level. And so I think what Pi Pi isn't saying machinery is bad. He actually sounds uh, in this last chapter uh, that we were talking about last time. He actually sounds open to if machinery could give us this diversity. Yeah then that would be so, that would be good. That would be something that we would want to have. But the problem is we can't, therefore handwork is really yeah. important for that reason. <clears throat> yeah, he says it is very probable that if diversity were appreciated as much as economy, synthetic or processed materials would be made with an equal, equally rich inherent diversification. So he's saying, if only we realized how important this is, we would start producing it. And then basically that becomes, uh, based on his logic, the death knell for anything handmade. Yep. Because he says in every way it's faster and better to have it mass produced, except for the diversity question. Mm -hmm. So now if we can take care of that with our machines, then we can close Pi's book and put it on the shelf and close up our workshop and be perfectly happy and content in life. Because mm -hmm. everything now looks as beautiful as we've always loved in handmade objects, but you can go to you know Walmart and buy it. So uh, that is that is a shortcoming, I think, in this book, yeah. in the way that Pi argues. Right, and it, so it really gets, I think, what needs to happen then, what I would want to, to fill out this discussion is, as I put out last time, you know, Pi is really good at saying that something is the case. He's, he's you know, diagnosing the the aesthetics question and saying what's so valuable about what we're seeing in a, a handcrafted object or whatever. He's saying, this is beautiful and this is beautiful and this is beautiful. And you're seeing all of the irregularities and the brush strokes and tool marks and it's all lovely. So that that's the why question. Mm -hmm. I, the next uh, layer, the next chapter to the discussion needs to say, and why is that lovely? Mm -hmm. Right, not just that it is, and I think that it's one of those things that is, is pretty clear uh, that when we're looking at brush strokes, when we're looking at tool marks, we're not in our brains going, "Wow, look at the variation of the surface yeah. quality." Yeah, <laughs> right? we're not. No, no, that's not what anyone is thinking about when they're looking at brush strokes or tool marks. Yeah, they're saying, "Think about the person who yeah, made there's that." There's a human connection. Wow. Yep. Look at the, even if you can't, even if you don't know much about painting, but you see the brush strokes, you know, straight from 
uh, Rembrandt or straight, you know, when you see those, you say, oh, that is a connection to that mm-hmm. person, that that artist, that, that craftsman. And I think that is why we're drawn to it. And I, I don't see pie anywhere in this book. Yeah. Pick that up. I mean, you can't get to that scientifically. And right. maybe that's his problem, that he was trying to come from just the purely scientific standpoint, which is why uh, his chapter on equivocality is is such a, well, it's such it's, a page turner. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> it's difficult to read that and go, like the only illustration in that is this, this kind of uh, blown up view of surface texture, right? With these different facets and stuff. And you're yeah. like, this is, this is sort of the crux of his argument. Yeah. And he can only look at it from a micro he's level. He's taking you into the microscope with yeah. him. And he's saying, now look, do you see that subtle little change there? Yeah. That's why and it's that, so great. That's why. And we say, no, no, <laughs> no. no, David, you missed the point. You missed the forest for the trees or the, the forest for the tiny bit of bark that you're looking really close at. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we've been discussing this at length, um, just how how this mark we feel like got missed in this book. Mm. And I think some of it comes out in his critique of Ruskin chapter, uh, where he's talking about what he doesn't like about Ruskin. And he says, Ruskin, uh, well, first of all, he says that Ruskin prefers rhetoric to the exact analysis of ideas and much preferred it to the definition of his terms. And that is absolutely true about Ruskin. Mm-hmm. What Pi's doing, though, is he's saying that's not his, Pi's, preference for for examining something. He prefers, you'd say, dialectic over rhetoric. He prefers the classical over the romantic, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of pursuit. And so he's saying Ruskin falls short because he's not as exacting in his analysis. precise enough. Ruskin talks in in big, broad, romantic terms, and I'm looking at it technically. And so he's saying, I don't like Ruskin because of that. And so he's he's kind of showing his hand there a little bit. He's, He's showing his cards... Um, and some of that comes out further on as he looks at Ruskin and, and questions him. Uh, he says, Ruskin is, he, at one point he says, Ruskin is, as usual, asserting that if he does not like something, it must therefore be thoroughly evil. And um, that's, that is, I would say that's probably true of yes. Ruskin. He, he speaks in very Victorian terms, which means hyperbole kind of all the time. It's either something is is very uh, great and grand and noble, or it is evil and wicked and unchristian and, and these mm. other terms that he, he uses. And some of those things he just applies to personal preferences, which mm-hmm. isn't unique to Ruskin, but... But am I mistaken? Isn't that what hyperbole is? It's not actually a, a totalizing... You're not saying, right. uh, I believe this thing, <clears throat> and therefore, you know, I believe systematically I'm totalizing, saying everything in this... Uh, you're not trying to... You're not speaking... Um, in a, um, without You're not exception. actually painting with a broad Hyperbole brush. Hyperbole yeah. is 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 not actually saying everyone is like this. Yeah. You're you're exaggerating for the sake of the point. Yeah, it's it's meant to illustrate absurdity, right? And and not to say, well, all of this is then in this category. I don't think the Victorians categorized as much as we do today, yeah. where we put everyone in a camp. Mm-hmm. And we say you're over there, and you're over there. I think the Victorians just well, we used... don't put everyone in a camp. 
<laughs> that's hyperbole. That, that's right? true. Not everyone. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I mean, that's the thing. And I think this is so interesting because this is such a characteristic of today that uh, we have become such technical, rigorous thinkers. Even if we're not very good at it, we're trying right. to be technical and that's rigorous. That's all in the water all around So us. if anyone uses some sort of hyperbolic statement, we're instantly saying, uh-uh, I know of an exception. Right. Yeah. You're not right because <laughs> I know a person who does it differently and and therefore your argument is is moot. And you're like, well, no, you can't make rules based on the occasional exceptions. Exactly. Like you got to... You got to realize that there's an exception to any rule, but in general, you can apply it. Right, right. And I feel like there's this tone running through the book is, you know, as I mentioned in previous episodes, uh, Glenn Adamson described Pi as fussy. Mm. And I think it's a good good descriptor that he's so particular and so fussy and so particular that he can't hear what Ruskin's even saying, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Of course, he's speaking hyperbolically. He knows he's speaking hyperbolically. He's not yeah. trying to speak, uh, you know, in a very technical way. And so you have to take him that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that they are kind of at an impasse there. Of course, Ruskin didn't have the chance to respond <laughs> uh, being dead at this time. But um, it would be interesting sitting the two of them down and having a, a little debate. Yeah, I would be. how that would go. I would also be really curious to learn more about Pi's views beyond this book. You know, if there were some interviews or something like right. that. I don't know. If you're listening and you know of some, please contact us. I would love to know more about this, but I would love to uh, get a little bit more behind his his thinking because I do see this book as such a narrow slice of his his interests or his... Um, a narrow slice of Pi. A narrow, <laughs> a narrow slice of Pi. Sorry, I, got, I always think about Pi with Pi. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it's such a such a narrow vantage point that I always wonder. Well, what's what did he believe behind that? Mm -hmm. You know. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Why did he use words like dangerous mm -hmm. when it came to this? And you know, you'd like to sit him down and and get give him a few drinks and say, "Come on, <laughs> I mean, like, really, tell me, get riled up here. Yeah. Tell me why this is bad, and then let him let him loose because I think he might start sounding like Ruskin." If that were the case, <laughs> um, yeah. So the the thing about it that I find, you know, that a next, uh, the next step I think that would be really important for someone is to be thinking along the lines of an anthropologist by the name of Tim Ingold, mm -hmm. um, who we've mentioned before on this podcast and uh, not in the Pi series, but in in other uh, episodes, because he's he's been so helpful. His book, The Perception of the Environment. In particular, he's talking about the nature of skilled work and what skill is, and he's coming from a phenomenological perspective. Uh, he's merging phenomenology and anthropology in um, interesting ways and trying to think about what it means to be involved in the world and to work in the world. And Ingold, um, he, he picks up what Pi is talking about, and he focuses on the judgment, dexterity, and care mm. that is inherent in Pi's definition of the workmanship of risk. Yeah. And I think that that's, again, that's right. Ingold is really uh, emphasizing something that Pi seems to drop off. Yeah, he, like, he what loses is the, that. What is the care? Yeah. Where's the care? It's sort of like, oh, they're, they're very, very precise by hand. Mm -hmm. What? That's... Right, because what happens is, like, if you decide that, um, 
artificial intelligence can produce something that gives all those pleasing aspects of a human uh, developed thing, like a, a poem, right? Let, let's say AI can write Shakespeare, new Shakespeare, that's as good as Shakespeare. And you say, well, it, it dots the I's and crosses the T's, it qualifies, it, you know, experts read this and they're blown away, it's so beautiful. Mm. So we've done it, yeah. yay us. We now can do, we, you know. The, <laughs> yay us. Yay us. The, the sky's the limit. Or um, <laughs> you've developed a, a new way to make furniture that looks handmade. So in Pi's definition, you know, again, yay us. We've, we've solved the problem. Right. Why do it by hand? Why? Yeah. Then why do it by hand? But Ingold latched onto what Pi was talking about when he talks about the idea of, of care. And so yeah. like, that's an intangible yeah. You can't quantify that or measure it in a test tube, but it is it is a core value to why you make things by hand, because you care, because yeah. you you love it. And and lest anyone is confused or saying, Yeah, but you couldn't tell if something was made with care or not by just examining the object, I would say, Yeah, you're not hearing what we're saying. Right. We're not looking it's it's not a utilitarian sort of assessment yeah. saying, Well, it's going to be most economical or it's going to yield the best, most precise yeah. Does results. Does it check all the boxes? No, no, no. Yeah. What we're saying is uh, work and making is this creative caring. Yeah. It's this giving <clears throat> forth into the world, you know? And so when you're saying, well, but when you look at the final object, you can't tell. Right. That's irrelevant yeah, to what we're talking that. about. So it's kind of like this. Uh, let's say you are... Um, you have a little store and you sell your handmade goods and somebody comes in, they buy a bunch of stuff and they give you a stack of 20s. You pull out your little marker. They look like real 20s. You pull out your marker, you mark them. You're like, these aren't real. These are not real money. These are not what we have all said and agreed on in this country. This is legal tender. This stands for something of real value, right? It's fake, but they say, oh, that doesn't matter. Or like, it looks really real. It looks exactly like- And you like, couldn't tell. You couldn't tell, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it looks really, really real. And you say, no, it doesn't matter how good it looks, how much it looks like the real thing, it's not the real thing. Yeah. So it doesn't have value, even if it looks like a real $20 bill. So so to connect that, you're saying if, uh, if machinery, robotics, AI mm -hmm. can mimic human- surfaces, right. you know, the variation of texture that comes through the workmanship of risk, it's it's counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. Yeah, it's I, counterfeit I really think so. I think that what we are able to develop with technology is simply counterfeit creativity mm. that is made to look like the genuine thing. But for it to be genuine, you know, I think it has to be made by a human being. Yeah, by definition. By definition, yeah. yeah unless it's, and then otherwise it's just mimicry it's just yeah. counterfeit it's just uh, a, a fake yeah so if it's not made with care and care is again it's an intangible it's not something you can apply to machine learning you can't chat program. gpt does not yeah. care it doesn't care no <laughs> and because it doesn't it can't actually write shakespeare it can write right. shakespeare sounding things but it's it is a counterfeit yeah. So Tim Ingold, he says, uh, he picks up on this and he talks about, he says, uh, skilled practice is not just the application of mechanical force to exterior objects. Mm. Whatever practitioners do to things is grounded in an attentive perceptual involvement with them 
or in other words, that they watch and feel as they work. Hmm. And so I, I think this is really important because uh, we have to think about this workmanship of risk. If we take out the judgment, dexterity, and care thing, and we say workmanship of risk is basically just workmanship of certainty by hand, mm-hmm. we're missing it. Yeah, It's not just you know, oh, well, I've really trained my muscles to function in this particular motion, regardless of any, you know, uh, watching and feeling. I just execute the motion like in a mechanical way. If I could mechanize my work, Mm -hmm. my sawing skills, if I could just be like a machine, uh, then that would be the workmanship of risk is, you know, conquered. I'm minimizing the risk because of my skill. And what Ingold is saying is, no, no, no. That's not what skilled practice is. It is not a bodily mechanical force, right? Yeah. It's not just we <clears throat> treat ourselves like machines and we apply this, this mechanical force to exterior objects, but it's actually a watching and a feeling and a caring and being involved or being involved with the work that we're, we're doing. That is skilled practice. Mm-hmm. And this is where Pi doesn't dare tread. And, you know, it it reminds me a lot, and in a lot of ways, I see so many exact ties in, like exactly where Pi stops. Um, uh, there's a, a book, it's the best-selling philosophy book of all time. Um, it's uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. Uh, so Robert Persig was inspired because he used to be um, uh, teaching a university. He was an English professor, and he taught rhetoric. And he was struck one day because he realized that he was grading his students and everyone for thousands of years has always graded their students on the quality of their work without being able to define what that means. <laughs> All right. So in English, you know, you could take, he, he said he would always do this exercise where he brings in a poem by like a great writer and a poem by a first year student. And he'd say, which one is better? And everyone could pick out which one is better. And he'd say, why? And of course, you can, I mean, he's better with words or it flows better or something like that. And he's like, define that quality. Nobody could do it. And he was really bothered by that because he's like, quality is like, this is like the, the heart of all of what we're doing. And we're passing and failing based on this. And he's like, well, I don't know how to define it. And so he... Um, he, he started exploring these concepts. He came up with this whole um, metaphysics of quality, as he put it. And it kind of ties in with a lot of what, what Pi was saying, because Pi was trying to get at this idea of quality, this mm-hmm. surface quality, right? Yeah. This diversity. And he's saying, this is what makes it really special. The problem is he defines it in such a nuanced way that it, it kind of loses all meaning for anyone, mm. right? And what Persig is saying is, when you try and define quality, you lose it. It's like mm. the watermelon seed. Yeah. So he says... When you, when you pinch a watermelon seed, yeah, it, you, when it you pinch goes, it too hard, it goes, it goes flying. You lose it. <laughs> and so um, this book is this, uh, this whole exploration of these ideas of, of what is quality? Like, why is that so important? And why can't we really define it? You know it when you see it, but you can't really say why it is a certain way. So one of the things he talks about is... When you talk about quality work, let's say the difference between that first year uh, student's paper and the great poet, he said, it's not a list of rules you can apply. You Mm. can't quantify quality. You can't say 
check these boxes with this piece, change it, edit it, and then it will become this one. Quality, which is what AI does. Which is what AI does. AI takes all the information and it says, like if you enter, like I did today, uh, <laughs> I want the lyrics for a rap about hand tool woodworking, right? And so it goes lyrics. It was really good actually. Rap, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. I'm not gonna perform it here, um, but anyway, you uh, go go and look that up if you want to go plug that in and see what you get. It's pretty bad, but it takes <laughs> you know the search string lyrics rap. It takes a bunch of rap lyrics. It puts them together. It gets woodworking terms. It brings them in. It arranges them in a way that's mm-hmm. grammatically uh, viable, feasible. Mm-hmm rhymes them you know some puts it to a, a sweet beat and <laughs> it doesn't do that yet but but anyway then here you have this thing that checks the boxes that you've laid out for it yeah and it it kind of works but it has no quality to it at all mm-hmm. um and it doesn't care I mean, it doesn't care yeah, yeah exactly. there is no care in the making of that there's no there's no artistry in it mm-hmm. artistry requires care it requires an artist yeah so it it does exactly. What is where is Chat GPT? You know, where is it working? Mm-hmm. Where is it at work? But you can't take a list of rules and apply it to something subpar and generate quality. Is mm-hmm. the thing. And what Pi was trying to do with his book is say, this is what I mean by quality. This this description right here. Mm-hmm. And we look at that and go, no, that's that's not it. You yeah. missed the mark. But what Persig uh, would say is that um, he, he would say like these are not necessarily tangible or measurable. So when you're approaching it from a scientific perspective, uh, from an empirical perspective, you're not gonna get to a point where you can measure quality because once you think you've measured it, you've lost it already, right? Um, <clears throat> so he, he, he talks about the fact that, and this gets back to uh, Pi's and Ruskin's disagreement. Pi didn't like Ruskin because Ruskin was really into rhetoric. Um, Persig mm. says that that ideas of truth and value culturally are always conveyed as analog and metaphor yeah, and right. story and not just like dry facts and dialectics. So he said, we have to look at that. We have to realize that we're in a very scientific age right now where when we, when we think about concepts, our minds are locked into the scientific approach. He said, but that's not how it's been. And I think Tim Ingold says stuff like that too. Like story is really important. Conveying truth with story is how we learn things. It's how we get things. It's how we get concepts. Um, So it's really really an interesting thing. Um, uh, I've I've found uh, Robert Persig's stuff pretty compelling in that book. I know he's inspired a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew Crawford was inspired a bit by him uh, for for his book about um, you know motorcycle maintenance also kind of but it was uh, shop class as soulcraft but um, it's just interesting to me that that he chose uh, sort of the motorcycle as as the vehicle if you will for <laughs> for trying to to use a metaphor yeah to use a metaphor to to unpack this concept um, that you know in a motorcycle you're experiencing all these things, you're engaging them. It's a very active form of transportation, very uncomfortable at times. Mm. But he says that that gives value to it. But uh, that's getting off on a tangent. Yeah. Big time. I mean, I think that that really Mm. is ripping open um, what is 
left unsaid in this book. Yeah. But it ends there um, where it does, uh, saying, we're going to need this, and uh, people will do it kind of for fun. But what's mm-hmm. really important about this is that it gives us this this visual quality. Right. <laughs> and then you read Persig, or you read Ingold, you read others, and you say, well, there's yeah. a whole lot more this here that's going on. whole other world that, than that just, he didn't even touch. Yeah. And so I think that's the, that's the fundamental... Uh, critique that I would have about this book. I think he has a lot of great insights, um, and I, I think he just stops. I think it's a good uh, building block. You know, mm-hmm. Ingold does say, uh, use it as a launching pad. But again, I think it, we, if we really focus on the care, if we really focus on this this element of you know the, the human involvement with the work, we're really going to be on a much better footing. It reminds me of uh, a quote from Wendell Berry uh, on this very kind of idea. He says, good workmanship, that is careful, considerate, and loving work, requires us to think considerately of the whole process, natural and cultural, involved in the making of wooden artifacts. Because the good worker does not share the industrial contempt for raw material. Hmm. The good worker loves the board before it becomes a table, loves the tree before it yields the board, loves the forest before it gives up the tree. And so Barry's saying that good workmanship is wrapped up with loving. Mm-hmm. Right? That was his word. Yeah. And Pi would say care. Mm-hmm. Engold emphasizes care. And so when we're thinking about what is good workmanship and yeah. what would it be to be a good workman, as Barry says here, it's to have a care. Mm-hmm. It's to have a loving, compassionate appreciation for uh, life as a gift and our work as a gift and being able to be involved in it, to make it, to make what you're making as a gift to someone else, to yeah. give it to them and they appreciate it. And that's a part of, uh, it's an expression of your affection for another person. And this is way too squishy for Pi. Yeah, it is way too squishy. He, he wants to break it down into something that can be quantified. Mm-hmm. But the most beautiful things of life cannot be quantified. Right. And so if we want our work to be beautiful, we have to get beyond uh, the domain that is restricted to quantification. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's, I mean, that's really kind of the, the heartbeat of what we're doing with M&T and what we're, our interest is, is getting beyond that, well, what's the most practical, pragmatic, you know, fastest way to do it? Um, we want to say, no, let's do this with heart because what's in our hearts is important and what in our work does matter. Yeah. And it is interesting because in the last chapter of David Pye's book, uh, he, he goes here a little bit and I feel like he, he could, he could unpack this more, but he talks about the amateur and you know, in the 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 sense of the definition of the word, an amateur who's does is someone who does something for the love of it rather than for for money. Yeah, not necessarily sloppy, but <clears throat> right for the love of. In fact, he, he says basically amateurs are often the best at that thing because right. they can pursue it to the nth degree. They don't have to worry about the bottom line. Mm. So he says. Amateur, after all, means by derivation, a man who does a job for the love of it rather than for the money. And that happens also to be the definition or at least the prerequisite of a good workman. Hmm. So that's the first and only time in this book where he talks about good workmanship requires the love of the worker for the work. And I think that that is a key. 
And I think that diversity is a reflection of that. Mm-hmm. And I wish you would say that. I wish you would too. <laughs> but. Well, uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, going through this book. Uh, it is a great book to be interacting with. There are other great books to interact with, but we really feel like if you have not rolled up your sleeves and really seriously engaged David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship, you're missing out and um, you're going to be lacking in uh, some really fundamental uh, arguments and ways of thinking. Hmm. Uh, so well, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and you can leave uh, comments or questions below. Uh, we'd be happy to uh, interact with you. And always, if you could, if you could leave a review, we would appreciate that. Uh, we love to connect with our listeners. Yeah, and so we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.